According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. Although questions and answers will take us elsewhere. We're taking a look at the third missionary journey tonight. Acts chapter 20. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the word of God tonight. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, giving each believer priest the opportunity to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be humbled under the authority of the word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you tonight, thankful for your grace, eternal plan. From Alpha to Omega, Father, you have been executing uh, the design, the wisdom of your design, the eternal purpose. You've been carrying it out in your Son, through your Holy Spirit, in us, each one of us. And Father, I just thank you that day by day, things we we learn, different surprises that pop in out of nowhere, uh, they're not at all a surprise to you, Father. You knew about it since, uh, since you designed it, and I thank you for that. And so, Father... As, uh, as we experience these things and the unfolding of the race that's set before us, I pray that we continue to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We call upon your faithfulness now tonight to uh, shape our thinking and to guide and direct our study. Help us as we continue to uh, present ourselves approved before you, work, work me needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, do you want to take some questions? The microphone runner is ready to go. He actually has a question tonight. Do you want to ask it out loud or should I ask it? <laughs> okay, Chris had a question. Um, the destruction of Jerusalem during the tribulation. What, what verses speak to that? Uh, I mentioned that there are prophecies of the destruction of Jerusalem and as they're given you want to kind of ask yourself, is this referring to the Babylonian destruction under Nebuchadnezzar? Is it the Roman destruction, the historical Roman destruction under Titus, 70 A.D.? Or is it, is it the eschatological Roman destruction under Antichrist that is still yet to come? And, uh, and depending on what book of the Bible you're reading, uh, all three of those may still be valid options. You know, if it's Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, books that are written before uh, Nebuchadnezzar, they could be speaking of the, the Babylonian destruction. All right? But if you're reading in Zechariah, which is after the Babylonian captivity, well, Okay, you just removed the Babylonian destruction as as a consideration. You're still left to ask yourself then is it the is it the Roman destruction of 70 AD under Titus, what we call the historical Roman destruction, or is it the eschatological Roman destruction under the revived Roman Empire under Antichrist? And uh, so you have those two options. Now, if Jesus is preaching in Matthew 24, um, you've got additional things that you can be looking at there, and uh, and that's a consideration as well. Matthew 24, Luke 21, and uh, and so forth. So this particular passage, I opened up the Bible there to Luke 21, uh, verses 20 through 24. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. And and it's legitimate to ask ourselves: Is this 70 A.D. or is this uh, eschatological? 
Um, there's a whole crowd out there that is forcing this into 70 AD because they don't want anything to be future. Uh, the revelation is over and done with, and Antichrist was Nero, and there is no millennium, and Satan is bound, and we're already in the kingdom, and <laughs> so forth. It's a horrible theological view. It's interesting, though, if I back up just slightly, you'll notice um, part of this, uh, you will be betrayed by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, that will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. All right, and that's significant because this this demands an eschatological fulfillment. Uh, the Jews were hated; they've always been hated, but they were hated in 70 A.D. Uh, not because of the name of Jesus Christ. All right, uh, Titus did not destroy them in 70 A.D. because of his hatred for the name of Jesus Christ. The Jews in 70 A.D. were not proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. See. But in the tribulation, what's remarkable is you're going to have 144,000 Jewish evangelists. You're going to have positive volition naming the name of Jesus Christ. They will look upon him whom they pierced and they will preach the crucified Messiah to this lost and dying world. And that is going to spark then world hatred that uh, will be dedicated to the destruction of Jerusalem and the extermination of the Jewish race. So I take Luke 21 eschatologically with respect to Antichrist and the tribulation, and I don't think to be fair to the text you can take it any other way. Uh, So not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives or your souls. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize her desolation is near. And those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave. Those who are in the country must not enter the city. You don't even go back to get a cloak. You don't go back to get anything. And if you're on the roof, jump off the roof. Don't, go t- don't take the time to go through the house. And if you're pregnant, that's, uh, that's trouble too. All right? It says, but because uh, these are days of vengeance so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. And woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in, in those days. Why is that a bad thing? because you ever seen a pregnant woman try to run okay it's hilarious all right they don't run very fast anyway um there will be a great distress upon the land and wrath to this people and they will fall by the edge of the sword and here's the destruction of the city they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive to all the nations and jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the gentiles until the times of the gentiles are fulfilled parallel text and a promise in revelation 11 2 um, where he's he's taking measurements of the tribulational temple but uh, the lord instructs him he says leave out the court which is outside the temple do not measure it for it has been given into the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months all right of course 42 months is three and a half years time times and half a time and this is the 1260 days of the second half of the tribulation the great the great tribulation as we as we understand it all right and there it is in verse three uh the 1260 days that's how we know that these are 30 day months all right these are 30 day months 360 day years and uh, the people that fail to recognize that end up with calendar problems in daniel chapter nine but uh, the people that do recognize the uh, prophetic calendar there it uh it's a much better study anyway those were Christopher's questions related to, and there's more, I'm sure. Uh, That's just top of my head kind of thing here tonight on uh, the tribulational destruction of of Jerusalem. So, additional questions. Let's uh, get the microphone over here then to the far right. 
the far right wing. Yes, ma'am. Yes, Tea Party. Okay, going back to the scripture in verse 24. Um, this is during the tribulation, right? Are you in Luke 21? Yes. Yes, uh-huh. Okay, so what is this? Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the ge- times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Times of the Gentiles is a remarkable expression, and it, what it refers to is, and it begins, kickoff for this, by the way, is what we're studying in Jeremiah on Sunday mornings. Kickoff for the times of the Gentiles is the vacated Davidic throne. And so it happens in 586 B.C. when the Davidic throne is vacated and the Jews are taken off to their captivity in, in Babylon. That began the times of the Gentiles. You have a, a, the, the statue dream of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 that outlines the course of Gentile history, specifically Gentile dominion over the Jewish people in the, in the trampling of Jerusalem. And so from Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, eschatological Rome in the end times, and then it comes to an end when, when Jesus Christ returns and takes his seat on the throne of David. So it's a fabulous expression. There's times of the Gentiles. Don't confuse it with the dispensation of the Gentiles. You know, it was before Abraham. And don't confuse it with uh, perhaps um, a, 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 another idiom that's, that's in Scripture. It's escaping me at the moment. Uh, it's not the dispensation of the Gentiles. It's the times of the Gentiles. And it references the Gentile dominion over the Jewish people, really the, the vacated Davidic throne. And so from the time that, that Jerusalem is destroyed and Zedekiah is put to death, uh, or is, his eyes are put out, the throne is vacated in 586. And it's not reseated ever again. See, when, when Zerubbabel led them back, Zerubbabel was the heir. Zerubbabel was entitled to that Davidic throne. But he, did, didn't, he never took a seat on the Davidic throne. He ruled as a Persian governor. And Zerubbabel's a marvelous historical character. I love Zerubbabel. And, and there's prophecies of Zerubbabel as a signet ring. And yet, from, from Zerubbabel on, there was never again a Davidic a king on the throne. Jesus was entitled to it. Son of Joseph going all the way back to Zerubbabel. But never took his seat on that throne. Not until the second advent. So from the vacating of the throne to the reseating of the throne, that is uh, the, the time frame that's referenced there in Luke 1, 21, 24, called the times of the Gentiles. Great question. I appreciate okay. that. All right, we're going to cross the aisle now by partisanship to the left wing. I didn't make you sit there. You're on the left wing. All right, all right. A follow-up question to that. Then uh-huh. you're saying that the tribulation is part of the times of the Gentiles? Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Everything in between the Davidic throne being vacated and the Davidic throne being seated. And it won't be seated until Jesus Christ takes the seat. Thank you. Yep. All right. Good questions tonight. Anything else? All right, well then we can, thank you, sir. We can uh, return to our uh, pep talks. This is the prison epistle preview or prison epistle prologue or prison epistle whatever, pronouncements, okay. Um, It's a pre-study to the prison epistles. And so before we tear into Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and, and Philemon, 
I think that this uh, this this homework is vital, and it's uh, it's a, a blessing to be able to compare scripture to scripture, to see everything Luke omitted and everything that Paul admitted, and to put them together in a framework. Uh, whereby we can hopefully harmonize what can be harmonized and then leave disharmonized the things that are just frankly a disharmony. And uh, the efforts to, uh, for example, the efforts to put the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, to try to put those into a framework between uh, Acts 13 and Acts 28, uh, it's impossible, all right? Although people have tried. And good people have tried. Good men have tried and done some some excellent things with it. In fact, one of the leading authors that I'm working with right now that I'm reading, I'm working with, he died in the 1930s, but um, in the 1950s, but um, he wrote a marvelous book on, on, on just what we're doing here tonight and, and actually is instrumental in, in, in showing to me how reasonable the Ephesian imprisonment is as a source of, of the prison epistles. He went far beyond where I'm going to go he went far beyond to, to try to put the pastoral epistles in the same framework, to put First uh, Timothy, Titus, and Second Timothy in the same framework, and I think that's that's not good. And and I think that he started to stretch his argumentation, and he laid forth some pretty weak arguments. And when he took it to that extent, and that's what what breaks my heart because see, then the critics that came along in the fifties and sixties. Uh, that went to attack him. I think they very rightfully attacked him related to the pastoral epistles, but they also went too far to just throw out everything that that he had to say, because I think that the case is very sound for the prison epistles related to uh, the Ephesian imprisonment as the as the source there. So anyway, we're going to be uh, dealing with some of these issues also as we as we get through it. So let's look at Acts 20 again, and uh, this uh, as we deal with the Ephesian ejection and uh, what it was that took him uh, out of Ephesus. It was not the planned departure that uh, we read about earlier in chapter 19, but it was uh, an uproar and then uh, an escape. Uh, He'd been in hiding for some time. I think for the whole second half of of chapter 19, Paul was in, uh, in an undisclosed location, right? He was like Vice President Cheney for half of the Bush administration. He was just in an undisclosed location somewhere while... uh, uh, you know, they were concerned about another 9-11 attack and things like that. And so uh, really, when uh, we get to verse 22 of Acts 19, he sends Timothy and Erastus off to Macedonia. He himself stayed in Asia for a while, and then he's kind of out of action after that because this disturbance comes up, and, and he, he wants to charge in there and start arguing this and that, and they hold him back, and he, they keep him hidden the arrest warrants are issued. They can't find him. They start arresting other people instead of him. And, uh, and, and so from verse 23 to the end of the chapter to verse 41 there in Acts 19 really is a time of Paul's uh, hidden away circumstance and, uh, and growing frustration over Titus's failure to return from, uh, from Corinth and other, other facets there. That, so by the time he leaves, when we read in Acts 20 and verse 1, uh, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. Notice he couldn't go back into town and talk to them face to face. So he sends for them. And they come to wherever his hiding location was. Um, they, and uh, so he exhorted them and took his leave of them. He left to go to Macedonia. And Luke doesn't tell us that when he left, he was a miserable wreck. All right. He was, he was um, really out of sorts. 
And so I think uh, if we hold your finger there in Acts 20, and let's look at 2 Corinthians 2 and uh, get Paul's commentary on the same episode, that uh, in verses 12 and 13, he um, talks about his arrival here at Troas. And this is how, how frantic he is with respect to, to Titus, right? He had sent Titus to Corinth on a mission, and Titus hadn't come back. And if you send somebody into hostile territory and they're already angry um, and, and, and you change your mind about sending Timothy because he's kind of young and timid and they're kind of angry and then you send Titus and then he goes missing, you can imagine what, what his thoughts are, right? You know, they did him in. They, took, they dragged him before the beam or did whatever mob justice and then put him down. And so it's, it's, to me it's, it's staggering in 2 Corinthians 2.12 when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, well, praise God for the open door. Let's preach the gospel. Let's bear some fruit. Let's get some people saved. No, Paul didn't do that. Why? Because I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. You know, think about how out of sorts. And, and honestly, if, if you are in that kind of soul turmoil, then maybe it's best you, you <laughs> leave the evangelism to somebody else that's, that's in fellowship at the moment. But um, anyway, it's described here in this way, and I, and I find that just extraordinary. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. And this goes on to describe a very powerful message here in, in, in those verses. Um, thankfully though when titus did make his appearance uh there was a great uh boost to paul and to his thinking and to his um uh a great relief off of his mind when we get to um uh, chapter 7 of second corinthians you'll see this uh, in verse 13 so second corinthians 7 13 it's not on the slide i'm just throwing this out here extra tonight um so he says uh, in verse 12, although I wrote to you, again, talking about a sorrowful letter, and he said, I don't regret it, don't regret it at all. Uh, look at verse 5 here, 2 Corinthians 7, 5. Even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. <laughs> and that you can preach that for a while too. He had no rest in Troas, so he went to Macedonia. He gets to Macedonia, he still has no rest, right? Think about how many people you know that that are just frantically running from one job to the next to the next, one town to the next to the next, one wife to the next to the next, or whatever, this frantic search for happiness, and they're not finding it. They're still a miserable wreck everywhere they run to because they're taking their carnality with them, all their mental attitude sins and everything else. And I'm not saying Paul was totally carnal on this, but he was definitely in soul turmoil, right, as he describes it. Even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. And so it's bad enough that all the enemies are attacking him with with this uh, temptation and that affliction and this persecution and whatever else. Beyond all that, Paul was eating himself up inside, blaming himself for getting Titus killed. (laughs) You know? Carry that kind of guilt around with you. But then, God who comforts the depressed. Isn't that beautiful? See, God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. 
And there's so much in this. Again, you can preach this for days on end as well. People want to supplement Scripture with Freud. People want to substitute the power of God for some kind of prescription. Uh, God comforts the depressed. And that's, that's the faithful testimony of Scripture. And he comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. So it's good news. Not only was Titus alive and well, he was reporting success among the Corinthians, that they were repentant, that they had a, a change of heart, and that they're looking forward to, to Paul being with them. They responded to the sorrowful letter and all those things there. So, um, verse 13, besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. And so all these things here with Titus, his affection abounds all the more towards you. Verse 15, as he remembers the, the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. So all of those details, okay, all of those details are completely omitted by Luke. Because all Luke says is, he took his leave of them and left to go to Macedonia. <laughs> all right. Well, there you go. Just the facts. Um, and then in verse 2, when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. Again, the briefest of sketches. The briefest of sketches. We don't know anything about, uh, I meant to change my typo there, Illyricum. Illyricum. I misspelled Illyricum. So it looks like Illyricum. But it's Illyricum. So uh, take the C from where it's there and move it over before the U-M, and you'll have it spelled right, and I'll fix that before Sunday. Illyricum. Illyricum. There we go. And, and that's not mentioned in verse 2. That's part of those districts, all right? Other things aren't mentioned, uh, including the ministry that took place there, included the writing of Second Corinthians, included the reunion with Titus, included the great joy there, included the abundant treasure that had been donated by, the, uh, by Philippi and the Macedonian churches for the funds that are being sent to Jerusalem. There's a lot that could go into verse 2, and it's not in verse 2. Luke omitted Paul's writing of 2 Corinthians from Macedonia on his way to his third visit to Corinth, along with every mention of Titus. Titus shows up nine times in 2 Corinthians and nowhere in the book of Luke. I mean, nowhere in the book of Acts. See, And, and yet he's, he's, he's a major character here, or should be a major character here named in, in chapter 20. And so he comes to Greece, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so well, what happened during those three months? A lot happened in those three months. He wrote the book of Romans. Not that Luke cared to tell us that. All right. And uh, what else did Luke not tell us about? Other details there. All right. Um, the writing of 2 Corinthians is significant. Because what he writes in Macedonia on his way to Corinth, what he writes there, he's testifying specifically to what he just very recently went through in Asia. And all of the omissions we're talking about get pinpointed here. And so there's hardship references in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. Hardship references. References that, by the way, include imprisonments. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 11. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, 
that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. If you think you're going to die, that's a serious affliction. So what kind of imprisonment caused that? What was the the nature of that uh, imprisonment, see? Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. You're waiting for the judge to give you the sentence, but it's already been internalized. Your mind is already being prepared. You're convinced. It's happening. You're going to be put to death. We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us, past tense, from so great a peril of death. He will deliver us, the ongoing affliction that was happening even when he was writing 2 Corinthians. Uh, And he will yet deliver us, future deliverance. He on whom we have set our hope. He will yet deliver us. And so we see this. You also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of the many. So there are hardship references in 2 Corinthians 8. And specifically in Asia, we're told. Verse 8 says, the affliction that came to us in Asia. Pinpointing that Luke omitted that in, in Acts 19. All right. We also have the, uh, the uh, persecution catalog in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. Okay? 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29, which says, far more imprisonments, plus the multiple imprisonments that are mentioned in uh, chapter 6 and verse 5, in beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and in hunger. That was a description of the Ephesus ministry. Chapter 11 and verse 23, far more imprisonments, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, uh, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, apart from such external things. Isn't that beautiful? There is the daily pressure of me of concern for all the churches. And so this is what he's dealing with. Now all the churches... Remember what was happening in Ephesus? Thriving ministry. Lampstands being planted. Churches being grounded. Colossae was grounded during this time. All right? The planting of these churches. And it was a heavy load on Paul. He said, a wide door has opened for me for service and there are many adversaries. Okay? And so we get this picture of what was happening there for three years in Ephesus. Usually that's included as a part of the missionary, the third missionary journey. I think it was a, a headquarters establishment in the training ministry that uh, it's better to not even think of the third missionary journey until Acts 20 and verse 2 when he sets out and goes to Macedonia and goes to Greece. But that's just my quirky approach to that. So notice, uh, these sections are the most critical omissions and admissions any New Testament student needs to thoroughly examine, to rightly establish the background of the prison epistles. Okay, The prison epistles also the pastoral epistles that follow because we can harmonize the prison epistles we cannot harmonize the pastoral epistles and i think we have to leave those as a disharmony 
we have to leave those as a post-Acts 28 narrative for, for the Apostle Paul. That uh, after he was released in Acts 28, he had further travels, further uh, fruit, until his rearrest and his martyrdom in, in 67 AD. We'll discuss that also. Understand that the far more imprisonments cannot include Caesarea or Rome. They haven't happened yet. Caesarea doesn't happen until Acts 21, and Rome doesn't happen until Acts 28. And so uh, when he's writing about it in 2 Corinthians 11, the far more imprisonments don't include either of those. Certainly could harmonize well with condemned to death, dying daily, fought with wild beasts, these expressions that we've already seen, the things that happened to him in Ephesus. Now, when he gets to Greece, Luke is even sketchier. <laughs> if, it's, if that's possible. I mean, how sketchy was he in verse 2? He's even sketchier in verse 3. Stayed there three months. Jewish plots. He left town. <laughs> really? That's it? Well, he omits the writing of Romans from Corinth. And what's interesting now, we can now turn to the book of Romans. And we can find clues there, including the names of people, traveling companions. And so what's, what's interesting is when he leaves Corinth, thankfully, Luke gives us a helpful team roster at Acts 20 in verse 4. And we have a team roster that we can look at, which we can compare and contrast with the greetings passages, the passage that Paul writes in, uh, in Romans 16. All right? We got a lot of names there. And it's interesting is the names that he's sending, for the most part, as he's greeting the, greeting the Roman believers to the West, for the most part, are not the same as the, the names of those that he's taking with him back to the East. And I find that to be significant as well. Timothy overlaps, there's one or two others. But for the bulk, it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, description here. So in Acts 20, let's look at this roster. So he spent three months when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. Whatever that plot was, you know, he thwarted it by not getting on the boat. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Purus. We don't know much more about him. In fact, I don't think we know anything about him, but there's the name. And by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians. We do have glimpses of Aristarchus elsewhere, and so we know him better than some of these other ones. Secundus, we don't know. I think it's Latin for junior. <laughs> All right. Or the second son, perhaps, the little brother, uh, as the case may be. Also, Gaius of Derby. Lots of Gaiuses in the New Testament. Uh, Timothy, who's kind of tacked on there. And most of these names, by the way, are connected with a geography statement. And so if you've got a couple of Thessalonians and then a couple of Derbys, Derby people, uh, Gaius and Timothy, and then uh, Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. We know about Trophimus because he's the famous guy that got left sick at Miletus, right? Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. You've got to decide which time through Miletus did that happen and, and all the rest. Proof, by the way, that the gift of healing was already uh, fading and passing away and no longer functional because why didn't Paul just heal him? Okay. But notice, these had gone on ahead. These had gone on ahead. So he doesn't get on the boat. 
Instead, he sends an advance party team ahead, probably on the same boat, but instead of sailing to Syria, they sailed to, uh, to Troas. And Paul got on his feet and marched back north into Macedonia. All right. And then notice this is where he picks up Luke because uh, they were waiting for us at Troas. And so the us uh, narrative returns again. We haven't had that us narrative since uh, chapter 16 when he left Luke in, uh, in Philippi. So we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them, the team members, the roster mentioned in, in verse 4, came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. And keep these numbers in mind too, by the way, because a significant facet in the writing of Philippians is how long does it take to travel from Philippi to Paul's location when he wrote the book? And, uh, and how do we fit four round trips or five round trips or six round trips uh, into that time frame? Well, here we have a very short journey and we know how long it takes to get from Philippi to uh, Ephesus based on this uh, travelogue that we have right here. All right, uh, and there we stayed seven days. And uh, this, by the way, is when uh, Paul preaches so long to midnight and Eutychus uh, fell out the window and uh, Paul brings him back to life. And then at daybreak and then they leave town. So this is what, uh, this is closing out the final stages of this third missionary journey. A very short missionary journey, by the way. If you exclude the three years in in Ephesus, uh, the time after that when he does the the great loop around and back was actually not that long of a journey. Um, All right, so that gets us through there. Now, um, I'll come back to that in a moment. Before I get to verse 13, let's see, because there's more... uh, there's more cloak and dagger here. Let's, let's stay in Acts 20 as, as long as we're here. Verse 13, But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And so when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. All right? And... Um, Mytilene is the, uh, in fact, to this day, it's still there, is the, is the capital city on uh, the island of Lesbos, if you ever do those kind of studies, uh, the island of Lesbos in uh, the Aegean. All right. And uh, so again, there's more cloak and dagger, right? There's more, uh, you know, he doesn't get on the boat. They get on the boat and he takes the long way around and he walks. They meet him in another place. Then he sneaks on the boat. Then they go to uh, Mytilene. And then from there, Selling from there, we. And now we've got to ask ourselves, well, who's the we? All right. In verse 30, we, going ahead to the ship, uh, set sail for Assos. But Paul went by land and met us at Assos. So is this still the entirety, every name that's mentioned in verse 4? Are they still a part of this journey? Are they still a part of this journey? Are they, with, are they, are they part of the we with Luke? when they make it to Mytilene, when they make it to Miletus? Are they still with Luke and Paul when they go to Jerusalem? Most of these names disappear. In fact, we never see Timothy again for the rest of the book of Acts. All right? Most of these names disappear. And so when he's in Jerusalem, it's not clear who's there with him other than Luke and Aristarchus and, and, uh, and Trophimus. Okay? Um, beyond that, maybe none of them made it to Jerusalem. 
Maybe none of them left Troas. Well, a couple of them had to because there's a we there. Maybe they, they stayed at Ephesus. Because this is what happens here. Um, verse 16. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And so he finishes a missionary journey. Like number one, remember, began and ended at Antioch. Number two, began and ended at Antioch. Number three, began and should have ended at Ephesus. But he sails past Ephesus and he, t- and he commands the elders there to come report to him and he gives his report at, uh, at Miletus. So from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now, this message now from 17 and following for the rest of chapter 20, this message is powerful. Okay, and There's a lot of doctrine in this passage. There's a lot of principles here. This is where we get the whole counsel of the Word of God is in this chapter right here. That we don't duck from teaching anything that's profitable. We have to teach 1,189 chapters of the Bible. We can't hide from a single verse. And um, all of the warnings that come here. Uh, there's also, by the way, clues. Clues, and we talked about them already, that Luke didn't write about in chapter 19, but Paul sure talks about them in chapter 20. <laughs> okay? Uh, you, uh, verse 18 says, You yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Okay? Kind of like to know what those were. Luke didn't write about them. Uh, Paul told us a little bit in, in 2 Corinthians. That's why we know that they happened. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly and from house to house. How much house to house did he do while he was hiding? Sleeping in a different house every night so that the authorities didn't know where he was and uh, the different arrest warrants to try to bring him into custody. And uh, and these things. All right. Um, and we've already discussed the um, nature of this conflict. Some of them probably, some of it probably came about from his fellow teachers, his fellow leaders. He warned them in verse twenty-eight: "Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock." You, know, you think shepherds are supposed to look out for the flock? I think I've been a pastor ten years or longer, maybe when I finally verse 28 slapped me upside the head and said will you read me for a change okay because it doesn't say be on guard for the flock first of all it says be on guard for yourselves and then once you do that then all of y'all together can be on guard for all the flock so these fellow elders actually have to they hold each other accountable they have to they have to be on guard against one of them going renegade one of them going uh, apostate into false doctrine and, and, and turning to uh, to become a persecutor and, and, and all the rest. So be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which you purchased with his own blood. And that's why this passage becomes so vital in our studies on ecclesiology and church polity and government and leadership in the church, uh, because it's the same group that are called elders in verse 17 they're called overseers in verse 28 and they're commanded to shepherd also in verse 28 and so all of those expressions the elder the overseer the pastor teacher they are interrelated but not strictly synonymous so we have to understand those 
those expressions and what do they signify? Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. But they start by going after the elders, the shepherds, the overseers. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Someone's going to get a little burr up his bonnet and think he is something, and he's going to start drawing a following. Okay, Which, by the way, uh, is what he was speaking of when he wrote Philippians. He talks about how um, he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you, and he's about my only option right now. Um, let's look at that. Philippians 2, one side trip tonight. Philippians 2. So hold your finger there. Philippians 2.19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't think that's condemning. I just think it's objective reality. This is Paul in training ministry saying, I got men under training right now and they're not really, they're not ready for the shepherding duties that are required in Philippi, like, like uh, Timothy was ready. Okay? And that's, uh, but you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And there's uh, doctrine to glean out of that as we talk about the spiritual gift of server-minister and, and uh, different ministries connected there. Anyway, so I don't, a lot of commentaries are pretty rough on the statement that's made there in verse 21, 2021, that there's, you know, no one else who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. They all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. It's, uh, this is, this is part and parcel with the training ministry. Uh, don't lay hands on a man too hastily, lest he be puffed up in pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's, uh, it's not a harsh statement, but it's a reality statement. That the biggest thing you've got to do to prepare for ordination is uh, make sure that that man's humble and uh, ready to be a servant shepherd and not, uh, not be full of himself when he takes a flock. So all of those principles, they, they, they come out in the writing of Philippians and they come out in a context that seems to be very harmonious with what we're reading about here when Paul is exhorting the elders of, uh, of, of Ephesus He says, uh, savage wolves will come in among you. I'm I'm back in Acts 20 now. And verse 30 says, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And it's it's interesting to me. Let's uh, let's keep on this here. I know I I do want to get to Romans 16, but let's look at this. Um, He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Yeah, why why do I have great hope for Pastor Dan at Corpus Christi Bible Church? Because of that verse right there, verse 32. We We can send him forth from Austin Bible Church and commend him to God and to the word of his grace. As long as Pastor Dan sticks with doctrine from Scripture, that ministry is going to thrive. It's uh, God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Look at these other clues. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. Well, who accused him of that? 
When was that charge leveled? Was that part of being a temple robber? Was that part of the charges that were filed there? When the riot was, was formed in chapter 19, they were accused of robbing temples? You yourselves know that these hands, these hands, probably wrote a song, these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. See, he was in a, in a financial hardship session. Again, he had to start working with his own hands. Philippi wanted to send a gift, but they lacked the opportunity until uh, at a certain point. Then they were able to revive their concern and send a gift. But uh, there was a season when Philippi couldn't even send a gift. And we have that described here also. And uh, little clues. Minister to my own needs and the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. All right. And so all of this is the, the doctrine that he gave in the three years he was living there and kind of a recap. This is Paul's recap of the Ephesus ministry with details that aren't found in chapter 19. This is maybe the most spectacular of the whole study because this is Luke recording what Paul says about stuff that Luke might have written about in chapter 19 but didn't, okay? And, and I just, it just cracks me up to think about these kind of things. So when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul, repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompany, and they were accompanying him to the ship. All right. So we parted from them, and then again, we don't know. Is this just Paul and Luke? Is uh, is the whole crowd from from verse four still present? Um, it's not clear. Is this when Timothy was assigned somewhere else? Was Timothy sent to go back to uh, to uh, Ephesus? Was he sent to? Was he left? We we, we just don't know. Okay? We don't see him in Jerusalem. We don't see him in Caesarea. We don't see him in Rome. We, we actually don't see him anywhere else in the book of, in the book of Acts. All right. Now, um, like I say, uh, he wrote the book of Romans from Corinth, and so it's useful to look at these names in Romans 16, even Romans 15. Remember when we taught the book of Romans, it was uh, there's suspicion about um, why does this book have two uh, conclusions? <laughs> okay because um, it seems like romans 15 ends with a benediction now the god of peace be with you all amen and then we have a bonus chapter in chapter 16 and trust me there are tons of theories out there as to what romans 16 is supposed to be but anyway look at all these greetings uh starting with phoebe a deaconess from the church which is at Sincrea. And uh, different things there. All right, verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now, they're not traveling companions with Paul at this point. They're not journeying with him from Corinth to, to uh, Troas to, to Jerusalem and so forth. In fact, I accept this chapter as legitimately being sent to Rome that by this time now, Priscilla and Aquila have been able to relocate back to Rome again. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks. Man, I hope that's on DVD. I want to see that. There must have been some swashbuckling there or something. 
Okay? And if it was when Paul was thrown to the lions, that could have been even extra spectacular. We just don't know. But they risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Remember, it was during that Ephesian stage when just the ministry was exploding. They're planting churches in all these places throughout all of Asia. Also greet the church that is in their house. Uh, here's some other names. Epin- Eponitus. Eponitus. You know why he's famous? He's the first guy that got saved in Asia. Okay? My beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, fellow prisoners. Remember, multiple imprisonments. Imprisoned far more than, than all the rest. And on at least one occasion, uh, Andronicus and Junius were with him. Kinsmen. Likely part of the same family or clan of, uh, of Benjamin there, that uh, the tribe of Benjamin that the Apostle Paul was from. Outstanding among the apostles. They were in Christ before me. That is, they crossed over from being an Old Testament believer to a New Testament believer before Paul. Greet Ampliatus, Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Probably a group of slaves that were freed and, and uh, that. Greet uh, Tryphania and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who had worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. Also, his mother and mine. Boy, there's debate about what that's about. Okay? If, uh, if, if you and Rufus have the same mother, what does that make you? Yeah, Brothers. Um, unless, you know, Rufus's mother was like a mother to Paul at a certain point. Uh, however that works. Greet Asyncretus. That guy can never get it together. Okay. Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Okay. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister. And Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So here's a whole team, and they're all in Rome. I accept that they're all in Rome. All right? And this is a group that he's looking forward to working with as soon as he is finished with the current team that he has. This current team that he has, he's traveling with back to Asia, uh, ultimately to Jerusalem. And I suspect he's going to leave them there in Asia because his plan is to make now another log base, another missionary headquarters, another center of operations with these guys right here in Rome. And from there he's going to go to Spain, from there he's going to go to who knows, traditions they made all the way to England. All right? Uh, and, And that's the plan, to use this team of fellow workers that he's greeting here to form the next nucleus, the next base of operations for additional work beyond that. Now, uh, further down in um, this, again, these clues here point us to the conflict that he's having on this third missionary journey. So, verse uh, 17, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. Does that sound familiar? 
We're going to find verses in Philippians that talk about exactly that. Enemies of Christ, whose God is their belly. Okay? By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Wow, there's a promise. (laughs) All right, anytime, Lord. Um, Now, here's some more greetings. Uh, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, right? Not surprising. He's in in Corinth. He's writing this letter during his three months in Corinth. Timothy is with him. We know that from Acts 20 and verse 4. Timothy's his co-author on how many epistles? That's not surprising. As do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I think the Sosipater is a longer version of the Sopater that we read about in uh, Acts 20 and verse 4. And then the scribe himself, remember uh, Paul used an amanuensis to, to write all these, uh, he would dictate and the, and the uh, secretary would write it down as Tertius. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. That's that's key, okay? Because um, something's going to change when we get to the pastoral epistles. Luke is the amanuensis for First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. Okay, not Tertius, um, which means third or three or that's probably the original B three. I'm not sure what uh, Tertius was all about. Um, Gaius, told you there's tons of Gaiuses. Uh, Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. Remember, it was Timothy and Erastus that he sent as as uh, forerunners into Macedonia. The reason why Erastus is not mentioned in Acts 20 and verse 4, he's not a part of the missionary team anymore. He landed a gig in, in Corinth. You talk about a position of responsibility. If you're the city treasurer accountable to Rome, do we want a, do we want a believer in that kind of position? Wouldn't it be great if we had believers under doctrinal teaching that are in high government offices in our city, in our state, in our country? I think so. And uh, every Christian I've ever met that tells me that no, uh, a believer shouldn't vote, a believer shouldn't be involved in politics, politics is dirty, politics will defile you, get all Christians out of all political office. And I say, well, then what do you do with Erastus, the city treasurer? Okay? All right. And military service, Jesus didn't tell the centurion to quit being a soldier. All right. Uh, Quartus, the brother. And uh, the greetings there. All right. So it's useful. Uh, I think Timothy and Sopater uh, are the ones that double up uh, related to that. All right. So that's example nine. Now, example 10. The journey from Philippi to Jerusalem. Is Paul's third recorded visit to Philippi, and it begins the penultimate we segment of the book of Acts. The journey from Philippi to Jerusalem is, we've already read a lot of it. Uh, the journey from Philippi to Jerusalem is Paul's third recorded visit to Philippi, and begins the penultimate we segment of Acts. This is where the we section shows up again in, in chapter 20 and verse 5, because these, the verse 4 crowd, had gone ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And so this we section that takes us from 20, verse 5, down to 21 and verse 18. That's that's one of the we sections. And it's the second to last we section. Okay, It's the penultimate we segment of the book of Acts. 
Now, it's legitimate to ask, of the seven companions that are named in Acts 20, verse 3, is it verse 3 or verse 4? Verse 4, okay. Um, thank you. Of the uh, seven companions that are named in Acts 20 and verse 4, how many remained all the way to Jerusalem? We can't prove um, more than Luke because the we gets to Jerusalem. And he's not one of the companions mentioned in verse 4 anyway. Uh, and Trophimus. Trophimus is mentioned. Part of the uproar in Jerusalem names the name of Trophimus. All right? So we know he was there. Uh, we suspect that Aristarchus was there. Which must be on my next slide. <laughs> All right. So again, when we're talking about this, we're talking about this uh, final journey from Philippi down here to Miletus, chatting with the elders of Ephesus, and then sailing and Jerusalem. Okay? Now, like I said, this is normally included, this leg is normally included as a part of the third missionary journey. And everybody you read will end the third missionary journey at Jerusalem when Paul is arrested. All right? I prefer to think of this as the third missionary journey. Well, that's getting light. I need new batteries. All right. Prefer to think of that as the third missionary journey. Let's see if we can get this to work. Ooh. All right, here we go. I know you're praying for me. Here we go. Ah. So, rather than uh, and and likewise, this segment here. I don't count this as third missionary journey either. This segment here I count as the relocation from Antioch to Ephesus, right? And then he gives his farewell message to Miletus and he sails off to Jerusalem. I don't count that as third missionary journey either. In the three years that he spent in Ephesus, that was his missionary training, that was his pastoral training, that was his headquarters setup of operation. That's where he was training uh, the different men. Usually that's included in the third missionary journey, but I'm giving it a different label. This was a this was a headquarters operation. This was this was a uh, see there are there are ministries that that itinerant travel like missionaries and, and so forth, evangelists and whatnot. And then there are ministries that are planted that are just there. You know, 21 years in Austin, right at Austin Bible Church. That doesn't mean that you don't take an occasional mission trip here and there, but your main focus is the lampstand here. Right? Am I making sense? So uh, I don't begin the third missionary journey, this is my being strange now, until chapter 20 and verse 1. The uproar had ceased and he bid farewell and he set off for Macedonia. And so if I change colors now to blue and maybe make a thicker line, the third missionary journey is this part. That's the third missionary journey right there. Okay? As I define it. In my, in, I'm sorry? Yes, in the Bollinger Study Bible, when that gets published, third missionary journey is going to look like that. It's going to look like a, a limp banana. Some kind of a diseased jalapeno. I don't know. All right. 
Careful. All right. But, again, put that map back up. So, I'll even switch back to this one. So, um, he has a bunch of helpers with him, right? Seven of them that are named. And I'm out of time. It's 8.30 already. Okay. Um, So, his companions that are here, and it'd be helpful if I just memorized this list of names. I don't know how to keep turning there. He was accompanied by Sopater, or Sosopater, of Berea, the son of Purus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby and, and Timothy, uh, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. There's seven, all right? The magnificent seven right there, okay? How many of those seven made it all the way to Jerusalem? Okay, or eight if you include Luke, because the wheat shows up from Philippi to, to Troas. So seven of them went ahead and were waiting there at Troas, while Paul and Luke met them at Troas. But how many made it all the way down here to Jerusalem? And you got till Sunday to figure that out. Because I'm out of time. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your blessings. We call upon your faithfulness in every application, Father. As we study to show ourselves approved, open our eyes to these blessings and uh, prepare us, Father, for the assignments you have for us including, uh, well, you've already done it in in a lot of ways, Father. We've set up a a logistical base. We've set up a training center. We've uh, sent forth uh, Pastor Cliff and Pastor Dan. And, and, uh, Father, it's uh, so fun to be a part of your plan, especially since it's all grace. We don't deserve this. We haven't earned this. Who are we, Father? In fact, uh, man, you know, to you be the glory. How... You bring about such perfect results even though you use such imperfect tools. It's, it's amazing, Father, how we, uh, we who boast have to boast in the Lord. Thank you for designing a plan uh, as you've done and for making it so clear in the Word of God. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.